0: Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show, I'm your host Greg Bennett and this was one of my all-time favorite episodes with good friend Dr. Johnny Bowden, also known as the Nutrition Myth Buster. And Johnny, who's in his mid-70s is just somebody that just speaks the truth. I found it a fascinating conversation. There's a few bits that you might find controversial, but that's all the more reason you should listen. But give this one a listen. It it came out about 18 months ago. I've put it out again because in this episode, you know, Johnny holds no punches and he pokes holes in a lot of the information and recommendations we've been given from many of the health authorities that we all tend to listen to. And uh, I think this is a really great one just to, you don't have to agree with everything he says, but it, it at least makes you think... And I, for one, left this conversation a better friend with Johnny. We've, we've kept in contact and I think he speaks a lot of truth. So I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. All right, today I'm joined by one of my all time favorite experts in the health channel of the Any Question app. He holds no punches and he pokes holes at the information and recommendations that we've been given by, by the so called health authorities. And it's why he's commonly referred to. As the nutrition mythbuster, he has a PhD in holistic nutrition and is a certified uh, nutrition specialist from the American College of Nutrition. He's the author of about fifteen books on health, longevity, and nutrition, including the 150 healthiest foods on Earth, the Great Cholesterol Myth, Living Low Carb, the Most Effective Ways to Live Longer, and Smart Fat, just to name a few. His answers on the Any Question app have just been thoughtful, informative very respectful and very entertaining. He loves telling the truth where the truth needs to be told and I for one truly appreciate that. It's an honor and privilege to have him join me today. So welcome and thank you for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show, Dr. Johnny
1: Bowden. How are you, mate? I'm great, man, and thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this interview a lot.
0: Uh, You and me both. I've really, really enjoyed doing the homework for this. In fact, I was on your website and I've I've signed up for your is it a weekly email? Um,
1: I'm just oh, such a huge fan of no. everything you're doing. <laughs> no, it's much more like whenever whenever I feel like an email. <laughs> I need I need to get much better at that. Uh, I wish it were weekly. Maybe we'll get to that.
0: No, but people go check it out anyway. It's at johnnybowden.com. Um, Thank you. And, and you got a lot of great information there. Where where in the world are you at the moment? Los Angeles. LA, very cool. Which is where I live, yeah. That's home for you, very cool. Yeah. Well, I want to start the show today by rewinding the clock Mm -hmm. because your story was, it's a lot of fun, if we want to call it fun, I guess that's (laughs) in jest. And and so I'd love to just rewind the clock and just give us a background of how you found your passion for nutrition and everything to this date. So if you can give us a bit of a, a guide, that'd be great.
1: I would love to, but I want to, if you don't mind, I'd like to comment on something you said in the introduction. Mm-hmm. You were talking about telling the truth mm. and about my, you know, nutrition myth buster, which is basically about telling truth to power. Mm. And I, what I wanted to just color that with a little bit is telling the truth as we understand it. Now, mm. the thing I once wrote an article called, I am not your guru. <laughs> it was based on a, a film that was made about Tom, Tony Robbins and, it basically says, look, man, don't follow gurus. Anybody who claims at this point in time to have the final and definitive truth on obesity, on weight management, on how we get fat, on how we get sick, on how we get well, anyone who on what's going on with COVID, anyone who who claims right now to know the absolute truth is basically giving you propaganda and, and self-marketing. <laughs> um the truth changes Mm -hmm. it it evolves um we get new information we get new science some of the most provocative science tells us how we think about things is more colored by our emotions our feelings our confirmation bias than it is by facts Mm -hmm. so i'm very suspicious of anyone who says i have the truth listen to me what i have and we and you and i talked about this offline before about our talents What I have is the ability to help people ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. I don't have the truth. I will tell you how I see things, and I will tell you what I think is boneheaded about the advice we've been getting from medical authorities and from government agencies about how to eat and how to get well and what drugs to take and all of that. I can show you why I think that's boneheaded nonsense, but I don't have the truth with capital T's. And I just want anyone listening to this to know that right outside. I'm i a seeker of truth as much as anyone listening to this. And all I can do is be a, my goal is to be the best guide possible to you finding your answers. Well said. And that's, that. this is why I'm
0: a huge fan of what you, who you are and what you're doing. Oh, thank so you, mate. I appreciate, it, mate, um, and, and for clearing that up for me. That was fantastic. Thank you. So let's rewind this clock, back though. Back to my story. Yeah, <laughs> let, let's
1: hear your story, mate, because um, yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, you want to go back? You really want to go back to my origin story? I guess the one you're talking about is I started life as a musician, torn between two careers, music and psychology. So I studied both. I got my bachelor's in music and my master's in psychology. And during the time of working in a mu- as a musician, I picked up a nice little drug and alcohol habit. Mm. So basically, I was a working musician. It was not an aspiring one. I earned my living at it. I wasn't terribly good at it, but I did <laughs> earn a living as a professional pianist and conductor while getting a master's in psychology. And while being, you know, for the most part, uh, a drug addict and alcoholic. This began to change for me around the '80s, and around the time that I stopped alcohol and cocaine and heroin and everything else that was in the physician's desk reference that I could be addicted to. Mm. When that all stopped, is when I kind of got serious and decided really music was the thing for me, and I couldn't do both. I just wasn't smart enough, or I didn't have enough hours in the day to do both. A you know, PhD in psychology and be a professional musician. So I picked music. Now I'm sober and I started doing musical theater. And I was out of shape, and I was fat, and I smoked cigarettes, but I would go on tour with these different Broadway shows, and we would wind up being stuck in a town for a week. And I'd hang out with the actors. And what did the actors do? Well, it was their job to look good. So a lot of them, at least the guys I hung out with, they all went to the gym, and they all talked about their diet. And By the way, this is the 80s. We didn't have a Whole Foods. We didn't even have the internet. (laughs) You know, so this is a very, very limited flow of information. We had health food stores where you could buy vitamins. And people who did that were called health nuts. (laughs) This is before the day of a gym on every corner. And, you know, the health consciousness that we have now, there was only one health magazine. It was called Muscle and and, and Fitness, which we now refer to as muscle and fiction. But that was pretty much it. I said to one of the guys, I'll never forget, I asked him, we're living in a big house in Goodspeed Opera House in in, in Connecticut. And I said, Mike, show me how to do some of these exercises. And he shows me a bicep curl. And you know, it's like that. And he said, I'll take you to the gym one day. So I go to the gym. And I was one of these guys, Greg, that like got bitten by the bug, man. It was like holy moly this is nirvana i started i i'm gonna cut to the chase five Mm -hmm. six years later i now knew every gym in every city we'd get to dallas i knew we'd go to doug's gym check into the hotel that's doug's gym here's the health food store and i changed my diet i changed my obviously my exercise i began to lose weight i stopped smoking and i was not one of these guys who did it all at once Mm. I was not one of these, you know, David Goggins guys. Like, okay, that's it. I'm changing the whole world over. I was one of those guys who would like go to the gym, do a ben- or do a set of bench presses and go out and take a break, do a cigarette. Mm. So it was very, you know, it was a very slow process <laughs> for me, mm. but I really changed my life. Mm. And I, Interestingly, did it without any of the information that I know now. So I was eating cockamamie, vegetarian diets, things that I, I now, you know, don't really support at all for myself anyway. But I did, I did it and it was enough of a change that I lost weight, felt energetic, started performing better and became something of a zealot. Mm-hmm. And so being, as I mentioned earlier offline, a, a, a middle class Jewish, overachieving, academically oriented, you know, kind of family that I came from, the first thing I thought to myself is, I wonder if I can get a degree in exercise. I wonder if I can get a degree in personal training. Boy, that's sexy. That would be great. That would look great on the playbill of the, of the shows that I conduct and stuff like that. Um, that he's also a certified trainer. So I started looking into this and I find out that there are, in fact, organizations that will certify you as a personal trainer. So I get one of these certifications and now I love this stuff even more. So I get another one. And by eight, by 1989, 1990, I had six of them. Mm. Including for anybody who knows what these acronyms mean, ACE, ACSM, NASM, I mean, every, AFRA, every single one of them you can think of, National Strength and Conditioning Association, when it was easier to get than it is today. Um, so I was very, very well certified, but I'd still never worked with a client. So I'm in New York where I live one day and I'm walking down the street and I see this big, Glamorous looking sign saying a gym is coming right here on, 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 um, Amsterdam Avenue in New York City in the seventies. And it's called Equinox. Mm. And they're hiring trainers for when they open. Mm. So I walk in and I go, I'm a trainer. I've got, you know, these certifications and I was, I was, I'm in my forties now. So most of these trainers are 21 and 22. They're surf boys. They look great. They're, you know, they're athletes and <laughs> I'm 42. I look pretty good at this point. I'm in shape for my age, but I'm certainly not, you know, a 21 year old surfer boy. And I bonded with those owners and they hired me and God knows why, because I had no experience, I had no nothing, but I could talk pretty well (laughs) and I could communicate pretty well. And they thought, you know what, let's get the older guy in here. It's not a bad idea. And I worked with Equinox for seven years. I became the dean of the Equinox Fitness Training Institute, which where we taught trainers uh, biomechanics and anatomy and, and kinesiology and all of this stuff. And I was there as a trainer. I was always a writer, Greg. From second grade, I've been in special writing classes. So I, I wrote when I was a musician, I wrote articles about music and got them published. And now I, had, um, I, I was interested in writing about fitness because that's what I did. And I was lucky enough, one of my clients was the editor-in-chief of Fitness Magazine. She brought me in as a contributing editor. I started writing. I became the AOL weight loss coach, if you remember America Online when the internet first started. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It all led to my first book deal. Um, that's kind of how I got started in health and nutrition. Now, how I got started on this particular pathway is kind of germane to what we'll probably talk about. When I started in this field, I believed every piece of crap we had been taught Mm -hmm. by the American Dietetic Association about low-fat diets. I believed all the stuff about them. Everything we heard from conventional medicine and dietetics I thought was gospel. I was so low-fat at the time... That if I would be one of those guys that would order uh, an egg white omelet, mm-hmm. possibly the stupidest nutritional experiment <laughs> in the history of the world, I would order an egg white omelet. And if the omelet came with a little bit of the runny yolk still left in it, I would send it back because I was that sure it would give me heart disease. Wow. So I was a true believer. Mm. We would have clients at Equinox. The belief at the time was exercise more and eat less. And while you're at it, eat low fat and everything will be fine. And I won't say no one lost weight on that. I would say that over time now, looking back on it, it was an absolutely unsustainable strategy. But some people lost weight on it, but a lot didn't. Mm -hmm. And these people would come in. I remember one kind of a turning point would come in and say, you know what? This stuff's not working. But I have a friend who did Atkins. And they lost a lot of weight. So I'm going to try Atkins. And I would say, I and every other trainer I knew would say, you can't do that, dude. Are you out of your mind? You, I mean, this guy's a quack. He's telling you to eat bacon and, and, and lard and, and, and not to eat carbohydrates. And he should lose his medical license. And you can't do that. You might lose a pound or two, but so do the models who start the day with cocaine. The point is, you're going to die from a heart attack if you do that. <laughs> And they'd come back and guess what, Greg, they didn't die. <laughs> so I'm thinking of this one guy in particular, his belly starts shrinking, his eyes look clearer. What does your doctor say? What, what do your, your labs look like? And triglycerides are down and everything is good. <laughs> but doctors' his blood pressure is better. So they're not dying. And there's a con. Now I, I did put my psychology headset on because there's a concept in psychology we could all it's actually filtered into the into the mainstream it's called cognitive dissonance Mm. and it's what happens when two ideas can't both be true and the mind goes nuts trying to reconcile these two ideas it's either a circle or a square and either the atkins diet will kill you and i'm imagining this guy standing in front of me who looks healthy as a horse or what we've been told is not true they can't both be true And I started questioning a little bit. Well, wait a minute. What if that whole thing about cholesterol and saturated fat isn't true? Because this is this guy eating the Atkins diet and he's improving on every metric we can imagine. And that's when I began questioning some of the passed on wisdom of conventional dietetics and medicine. And what happened to me was very interesting um, because we see it happening today in the pandemic. We see it happening in every, you can see it in a million different fields actually, but I saw it in health and fitness. When I wasn't questioning the conventional wisdom, everybody thought I was the greatest teacher in the world. I was invited to speak at conferences. I was hmm. teaching people nutrition. Hmm. I was teaching them all this stuff. The minute I said, well, Guys, I think it's possible that what we've been taught about saturated fat isn't right. And here's a study that shows that immediately it was like the mob turned on me. Wow. Yeah. What does this guy know? He's not even a doctor. He's not even an authorized nutritionist. He's just a personal trainer. And he's telling us that this is. So you can imagine. So I was one of those guys who said, yeah, okay, you're right. I went back to school. And I got my PhD in what would now be called functional nutrition nutrition, not holistic nutrition, but mm-hmm. basically the functional medicine version of nutritionist trained very, very integratively. And I got my PhD and then I got board certified by the American College of Nutrition. That's my CNS. And then I turned around, gave him the finger and said, Okay, now I got the letters <laughs> and I'm telling you you're full of it. <laughs> and I've been kind of doing that ever since, whether it comes to soy foods or whether it comes to whether coffee is a you know, going to kill all of us because it raises our blood pressure. I mean, all the myths that we have been taught are very, you know, are, are kind of grist for the mill for me. I, they, they just get me going because I'm so eager to, to, to kind of disabuse people of the notion, for example, that cholesterol causes heart disease, saturated fat clogs your arteries. I mean, all of this stuff just is just not true. And that's how I got on the mission to correct it. That was awesome, by the way. We can just wrap
0: up the show right there because that was just... <laughs> when you talk about some of the myths, what, what, are you, what are the ones that stand out to you most? You know, you, you mentioned coffee and the caffeine. What, what, if I said to you, okay, what are the top four, five myths... That you you think we we need to really just get rid of?
1: I am very very plugged into the whole saturated fat and cholesterol mm. thing. Is as you mentioned before, we wrote a book called The Great Cholesterol Myth. Yeah, it got us on TV on Doctor Oz and the Doctors. It created a lot of controversy. A couple of years ago, two thousand twenty, at the end of the pan- at the beginning of the pandemic, we published a revised and an expanded edition of that, mm-hmm. um, and we got to really look at the causes of heart disease. I guess what I'm most passionate about in terms of mythology is what we believe incorrectly about fat and cholesterol. And I'll tell you why that is so important. Two reasons. The first is if cholesterol and saturated fat don't cause heart disease, what happens to the dietary recommendations we've been given since 1986? We've been told to avoid animal Mm -hmm. products Mm -hmm. and to avoid saturated fat. In fact, to avoid all fat at one point we were told And why? Because it raises blood cholesterol. And what does that do, ladies and gentlemen? Well, we all know that raising blood cholesterol causes heart disease, so therefore we shouldn't eat fat. Well, if that's not true, what happens to the dietary guidelines? Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what happens to them. They collapse like a house of dominoes because they're based on one false assumption. And that's where we got into this whole low-fat madness That's why we have an epidemic of what we now call diabesity, which is a Mm -hmm. combination of obesity and diabetes. And why do we have a name for both of them? Because they have the same cause. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, why that's the second reason why I'm so passionate about exposing this myth. There is a metabolic condition that 88% of Americans have to some degree, and that is in the literature. It is in a peer-reviewed study. You can look it up. The review of it is in Science Daily. 88% 88% of Americans have a condition called insulin resistance. And insulin resistance promotes heart disease as much as cigarettes promote lung cancer. Now, as we say in the book, insulin resistance does not track with every single case of heart disease. No, no cause and effect works that way. Even lung, even smoking doesn't track with lung cancer 100% of the time. There are people who have lung cancer, stage four lung cancer, who have never smoked. And people who smoke a pack and a half of camels every day and they die at 101 of something else. <laughs> so we, there are, but it tracks, insulin resistance may not track perfectly with heart disease, but it tracks pretty much as well as, as cigarettes do with smoking. And because we are so insanely obsessed with this lab value of cholesterol, which we're not even measuring correctly, by the way, and I hope we can talk about that as well, Mm. because we're so obsessed with that, we are taking our eye off the ball of the metabolic condition that is making us sick, fat, tired, and depressed that underlines every COVID comorbidity. And here's the punchline, ladies and gentlemen, insulin resistance can be treated, reversed, or prevented with diet, exercise, and fasting. That's simple. Okay, so let's let's lean in on this a little
0: bit because... Insulin resistance then. So we're really talking about simple sugars, high-carb diets, correct?
1: Let me let me tell you what most people know the term. In most people, this is such an uphill battle because most people don't even know what insulin resistance is. Nobody talks about it except in the health press. And so what you might know it as is pre-diabetes. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the incidence of pre-diabetes in the American population, if you look it up, just go to the National Institute of Health Library. It's called pubmed.gov. There's a hundred studies, on a hundred, there's thousands of studies on this. And this pre-diabetes is this constellation of conditions that are called metabolic syndrome, that are called pre-diabetes, that are correctly called insulin resistance syndrome. They involve abdominal obesity, high blood pressure, low HDL cholesterol, high triglycerides. Mm-hmm. And it's a combination of these things that, that we call pre-diabetes. Which is, in our book, we we make it very clear, pre-diabetes is diabetes. It just hasn't reached the diagnosis level yet. Just like high blood pressure, 139 over 79, it is high blood pressure. When it hits 140, you call it high blood pressure, but it's a continuum. Mm. And when you're up to 139, you know, the fact that the blood pressure machine says, that's normal. Come on, 140, that's high. (laughs) And that's kind of where we are with insulin resistance. And it shows up, this is the real tragedy of this stuff. It shows up 10 years before your doctor says, hey, Mrs. Jones, you know, you got a little bit of high blood sugar. Let's put you on some metformin for diabetes. Or your doctor says, your cholesterol is really high right now. I think we should put you on some medication 10 years earlier. You can see insulin resistance. Mm. You can test for it right now. And no one is because these doctors are still caught in 1963 medicine where they think LDL cholesterol is the name of the game and it's not. How do you
0: communicate with the doctors? I mean, it's an uphill, you know, it's a heavy lift, obviously. You know, we're we're talking about doctors and medical communities that have been around for, well, centuries in some cases and, and a community that... How do you crack through that? How do you get them to listen and make the changes?
1: Well, the first thing is to, to define who we mean when we say them. There are, at, le- at last time I checked, somewhere like 800,000 to or maybe just under a million, somewhere in there, number of physicians in America.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they are divided regionally, politically, attitudinally. Some are authoritarian, <laughs> some are open-minded. I mean, it's a... Very, very big population. And there isn't one way to reach all of them or to convince all of them any more than there is a way to convince all Democrats or all Republicans. It's a very big tent. Mm -hmm. And most doctors, I I think they said, let's say it's 800,000. I go to nutritional conferences, which are attended by doctors. And you see the same couple hundred doctors (laughs) at every one of them. So there's a few hundred doctors that are nutritionists and that are open to information about nutrition. That's amazing. The rest of them don't. If you go to your average doctor at Kaiser, and I don't mean to single out Kaiser, but any HMO, anything where you get a seven minute appointment, they don't know what vitamin D levels are supposed to be. They know what there are in the in the government issued thing, which is ridiculous. Mm. They, they wait till your vitamin D level is 20 to 30 to say, oh, it might be a little bit low. Are you kidding? We don't want to see 50 to 80. So they don't know about nutrition. They weren't trained in nutrition. They weren't given any courses in it, in college, uh, in, in medical school. The real head exploding thing here is when you really dig into how much big pharma educates doctors. They control the flow of information, the talking points. They send reps to the doc's office to show them studies that they've done to show how their drugs work better than anything else. And these doctors don't have the time. They're not bad people. They just don't have time to read all this stuff. They certainly don't read the nutrition journals. They can barely keep up with the journals in their own field. Mm. Everything is specialized, and big pharma has a huge influence on the educational, on the, uh, the the continuing education seminars that they have to take. All of that stuff, and and that's been documented in book after book. The most recent of which and you should probably try to have the author of this on your show, it's called Sickened by John Abramson. He is a, a lecturer at Harvard University, has been for 20 years, and um, he talks about how Big Pharma has literally created, you know, the conditions that, that we live in today and the messages that we get about health. What, what, what's he a professor in? What's, what's John... Uh- in the me- in medical school, he's in. He's in medical school. He's an MD. He's, he's an, MD. an M- He's also the number one expert witness in drug trials. When people sue the drug companies for, yeah. he goes in with a group of statisticians. They reanalyze the data. They look at this stuff. He knows this stuff from the inside out. He's been writing about it. He's been on the faculty of Harvard for twenty years. Wow, he's a great doctor. And he and his book "Sickened" will explain in in well, that's very awesome. frightening detail the the degree of influence. Big Pharma has on everything that we believe about health. So when you say, how do we change the population that's been fed this information? It's like, how do you change Russia from people who've been fed Putin's propaganda since they were born? Mm. It's there are people who reject it. There are people who say, wait a minute, the emperor's got no clothes here. (laughs) But it's not easy. And it's it's certainly we get I've gotten ever since I wrote living low carb. Which was heavily referenced, by the way. When you write these books that are kind of outside the mainstream, your editors really ask for substantiation. They don't let you just get in there and say, "Oh, you know, everybody takes shark cartilage and it will cure cancer." You got it. you better show the studies. I have 212 references in the Great Cholesterol Myth, and I'm probably 400 in, in Living Low Carb. So when I wrote that, I got letters from doctors who said, "You've changed our practice." Well, wow. this is thank you for I, I never thought of this. I never saw it this way. We also got an equal or greater number of letters from doctors who said you are cracks and should be thrown out of the profession and you don't know what you're talking about. And people will die if they go off their statin drugs. I mean, everything you can imagine. So there are occasional people who are really touched by our work and, and say, you know, thank you for bringing this to our attention. And It's a growing movement of people cholesterol skeptics, people who are skeptical of the conventional way of looking at cholesterol and heart disease. But they're in a minority. Mm. You know, I it's a long battle. I don't think in my lifetime we will see it really reversed. I think more and more it's trickling down now. People are just now I mean, even the, the government said cholesterol um is not a nutrient of concern, meaning in the diet, it's not. Well we knew that back in <laughs> back in the seventies. We knew that dietary cholesterol didn't make a damn bit of difference. But at least they're, they're admitting now that eating cholesterol makes no difference to anybody except a tiny percentage of 1% of people who have a genetic condition called hyperfamiliar hypercholesterolemia. (laughs) Familiar hypercholesterolemia. And that's a genetic condition It affects like one-tenth of 1%. And anyone else eating cholesterol all day long will not make the slightest damn bit of difference. Mm. So we are slowly seeing some acceptance of this stuff. Mm. Um, But it's not going to happen in my
0: lifetime. If they accept what you're saying... At the same time, they're admitting they were wrong. And when they admit that they're wrong, then you got to start to look at all the deaths that we've had through obesity and, and, and diabetics and heart disease over the last 40 years since they said fat is bad, go low fat. I, I think that's, that's probably the heavy lift. It's going, well,
1: hang on, we then have to say... I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Yes, you have to go, well, wait a minute, all this time I was wrong. And that takes a very big person. Oh, yeah. And and not,
0: it doesn't happen often. It might be a generational change because if you think of the doctors that actually were the ones that formed that in the was it late seventies or early eighties, you said there. Yes, yeah. You know, they basically said you know fat is bad and yep. go high carbohydrate diets. And I mean, we grew up. I don't know. This is a little side spin off on my career as an athlete. But I grew up in the late late eighties, early nineties when my triathlon career was starting. We mm-hmm. had they were called. Carbo parties, carbo loading parties. Carbo loading, of we, course. We, it we, was we, the biggest we, thing in training. It, we would I know. do it on the Friday or Saturday night before the events and everyone would stack down the pasta as much as you could. And that's what you did before races. And it was it was the common thing. And yeah. now we all look back and go, what were we thinking?
1: Well, you what know? were they thinking? <laughs> I, <laughs> I do want to, tell, I want to tell you, let me give you one slight diversion here that is very relevant. Mm. Um, we're talking about how do doctors change their mind. We're talking about, you know, how do you come up with the, notion that, well, if this is true, then everything I've been teaching for the past, I don't know how long, is, is yeah. BS. In fact, it, you may know, or maybe people who are listening might have heard of Dr. Peter Atia, mm-hmm. who is one of the great podcast, uh, kind of high performance athlete, doctor guys that everybody, you know, follows. He has a TED lecture that is worth looking at and it's from quite a number of years ago, where he is practically in tears, apologizing. To the many diabetic patients he thought he treated with the old way of thinking. Oh, well, they're just willpower. Well, it's just, you know, they eat too many calories. And and he literally, it's a mea culpa and it's a beautiful TED lecture worth hearing. Mm -hmm. Here's the story I wanted to tell you. And you'll love it on so many counts from, from both athletics and changing your mind and everything that we're talking about. So there was a great running girl. Named Tim Noakes, N oh, O A K E S, Doctor Noakes, mm-hmm. Dr. Noakes mm-hmm. Professor Noakes. I know Tim Noakes. Yes, who could not be more respected mm-hmm. in, in, in South Africa? He, they, they, have different citations for like the most most cited researcher and stuff like that. He's he was at the top of everybody's list. He, it's hard to explain the level of respect that this guy commanded in medicine and academia and academics. And he was a high carb uh, advocate and a running guru. Um, I think he wrote a book called The Lore of Running. The Bible, sure, mate. The,
0: the law of Running. I use so much of my no, okay, own great, great, training great, training. All right, yep. so that's
1: him. Yeah. He gets diabetes, and he goes, wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and he starts looking, at right? I'm a runner. And he, he's not fat, nothing. And he starts investigating. And he does, over time, a 100% reversal. And unlike, I can't really, maybe there's maybe five other people I can think of in history that have done so. He goes, I was completely wrong. And he becomes a major advocate of high fat diets, ketogenic diets, the whole low carb stuff. And this is what happened to him. Mm. He was on Twitter and he was giving advice to a woman who was pregnant and wanted to know what she should do when the baby's born. And he said, well, as fast as you can, breastfeed him for as long as you can. Yep. And then gradually switch them over to a high-fat diet. One of the dietitians in South Africa sees this and she brings him up on charges. And the charges involve losing your medical license, which he didn't need. At this point, he was not practicing. He's just writing and teaching. He's a professor. You know, he, he, he needs this like a hole in the head but he said, wait a minute. And it went to trial and the trial, it's called the nutrition trial of the century. Look it up on Google. It's all over the, please bet everything I say. Like I said before, don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't the have a a direct line to God and the truth. I want you to bet every single thing I say. So (laughs) if you look up the the nutrition trial of the century, Mm -hmm. Tim Noakes, all of what I'm about to tell you is there. Four years, They submitted thousands of pages of research articles. They had two international experts flown in as witnesses, Gary Taubs and Nina Teitelich. They looked at all of this evidence. And at the end, they found him not guilty of anything, not guilty of giving unscientific advice, not guilty of giving advice that wasn't supported by the research, it was a not guilty on all counts. He kept his medical license. End of story, four years in the making. That's what happens when you go against
0: mm, the grain, especially when you're in that area. When you're talking about pregnant women or breastfeeding young moms, that's a, that's a and you're giving advice there. That's always an area I feel like people like step away very cautiously. And the fact that he's gone in and then defended himself is, um, whoa. Very brave, for one. And and what
1: what that did for people who were watching was, wait a minute, there's this much research supporting that? I didn't know that. (laughs) That's kind of what we're up against.
0: Just a quick mini break to remind you to go check out any question, the app where you can ask the world's experts in so many channels, questions and get video answers from them you can all look at all the answers that they've already done you can search and discover all new content there but especially go check out dr johnny Bowden. you can go to anyquestion.com forward slash johnny Bowden. that's anyquestion.com forward slash johnny and it's free for the first hour you can go check it all out you can ask him questions there anything that i may have missed just shifting gear a little bit here. Sure. I kind of want to just dive into a couple of areas that you, you know, I, I've really enjoyed listening to you talk about. And one of them is the area of
1: fasting. Ah, Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. I, I, well,
0: it's an area I want to do a little bit. I, I personally want to know more about. I, I've experimented with some intermittent fasting and things like that, but let's just start at a high level and just sort of say, you know, what are the top
1: benefits of fasting? Oh my God. My history with fasting, I was never a faster. (laughs) It was like meditation, Greg, which I also started in the last five years. Mm. I always knew meditation did wonderful things for the brain, for the body, for the physiology. There was tons of research about it. I just couldn't do it. I thought, and now I can. I do it every day. But at the time, I thought that, and I thought the same thing about fasting. I know this stuff is good. I know, guys, my friend Mike Danielson, who's on on any question, and, and Bryce Wild—they they did a ten day fast in Tibet, and they're climbing the mountains. And I know this stuff's good for you. Yeah. I just was not going to do it. I didn't. I didn't <laughs> think I could do it. I thought it was very difficult. And during the pandemic. You know, the stores were closed or, or you, you know, there were, there were, everybody was crazy. You couldn't get the, yeah. the, the supermarket. And, and so I just kind of stocked up on the, on the basics of the low carb diet, the stuff that I normally eat, but without any of the, the other stuff, you know, I had nuts and olives and olive oil and avocados and, you know, the stuff that wasn't sold out in, in the stores. Right. Mm-hmm. I went less and less to the restaurants and the stores and I just started like nibbling on nuts all day long. And one way or the other, I wound up with a schedule. Our schedules change. I told you, you, you know, I play tennis every day. So our, everyone's schedule change, work schedules change. And I wound up playing two hours of tennis every morning on an empty stomach. We start early, 7.30. I usually don't finish till around noon and I started realizing I'm not eating till like one o'clock. Well, wait a minute. That's kind of like, the, not, that looks like what these people are talking about here with this intermittent fasting, isn't it? Because actually that is a sixteen-eight intermittent fast, 16 hours of fasting. And eight hours of eating. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But I realized that I had sort of begun to do this anyway, and I felt great. Mm -hmm. Now, I may not look like I have a weight problem, but I have been battling a weight problem all my life. I've always been, and even when I was a health, you know, even in my, in my health career, I looked okay. I looked good. You would never say, oh, this is, but I was a fat kid. Uh, I was the kind of person, if you looked at Ben and Jerry's, I'd gain an inch on my waist. So I was always kind of battling that extra five to 10 pounds that I could conceal very well. Well, during this time, my weight goes back to the idealized weight that I had in 1989 when I was at my leanest, when I was a trainer at Equinox and I was, you know, 6% body fat, whatever. And it goes back to that number. And it hasn't left that in two years of doing this. The only thing that has maintained my weight and energy. So I start looking into it more. And there was a lot of time during the pandemic. And I wound up researching fasting and writing a course on it called MetaFasting. And I also wrote a free five-day course, which I'm encouraging you to go to my website and sign up for. It's right there on the homepage. I, of Johnny I just saw Google that. And I just
0: saw that. And, yeah. and you've sent it's me an true. email to sign up for it's that. It's
1: basically five days of, of short videos, 10-minute videos meant to be consumed easily, you know, on, on headphones or whatever. That, you know, yeah. And there's a manual that goes with it. So I can answer a lot of questions both from a personal point of view of what it felt like to change to that lifestyle and also from what I have learned and taught now about fasting in both those courses. And so what does it do? Number one with a bullet is not the reason people go to it, but one of, for me, number one with a bullet is that it can lower or reverse insulin resistance,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: as I, I just told you earlier, if you just tuned in, I think is is the number one metabolic plague that, may, that that is undermining our health in this country and across the world. And there's research to back that up. We put it in the book. It can turn around insulin resistance, which keeps you fat and makes it almost impossible to lose weight. Mm-hmm. So you lose weight. It can definitely help with detoxification. It helps with energy. It helps with m- mental focus. And there is substantial research showing that it re- it reduces the risk of major chronic diseases. That's what it does.
0: And now, is that all intermittent fasting, or do you do it's fasting
1: in general? In general, I
0: mean- do you, do you separate the two? Do you, or you say, look, you you can do intermittent fasting, or you should do three, five, or. 10-day fasting, do you, do you see a difference between the two of them, or are they all the, the same? In my
1: courses, I divide them. I di- It's an arbitrary division. I call them uh, intermittent fasting, I define as something that you do for in a 24-hour period. So it's how you divide your day. Yeah. And then scheduled fasting is like two days a week, three days a week, ten days a month, when, anything that's longer than a day, I call a scheduled fast. Right. And you can do both. You can intermittent fast three days a week, and you can do a 24-hour water fast one day a week. I mean, there's a million ways to structure it. But the idea that the, the take home, mm. and I even did an article on my blog about this, the, the three biggest take homes of, of the fasting community that people can apply to their real life. Don't eat between meals. Let at least four hours go between meals and try to eat in a time restricted window, a mm-hmm. certain number of hours a day. So the easiest way to do this without even thinking about it is the 12 and 12. You see, and it's what everybody did in the nineteen fifties. You slept all night. You waited a couple hours to eat. Say eight o'clock in the morning, you ate your first meal. You ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You finished at eight p.m. and you didn't eat between meals. That's a twelve and twelve fast. It's pretty easy. It's the introductory way to get into this. It's what we recommend both in the introductory course and in meta fasting. Start with that, mm-hmm. and then and then all you do is expand it to a brunch fast. Like what do you do on a typical, you stop eating Saturday night and you don't eat again until Sunday brunch at 12. That's a brunch fat. And now you're doing 16. And that's the 16-8 program that is so popular, version of, of an intermittent fast. It's not that hard to do.
0: No, it's amazing. I was doing it actually, like you, through COVID, actually. It was one thing I was doing is intermittent fasting. And and I do need to get back to it. I kind of fell off the wagon, if you want to call it's it that great, for a bit. Man, It's great, oh, um, It's great. It helps
1: you control your appetite. The brain. And the, the, brain
0: the, the the way I could focus, uh, you know, up until I got around that midday and started eating again,
1: I was it was amazing in the mornings what I could do and achieve. Yeah. You know, as trainers... We used to teach people, oh, you got to eat something before you train. You know, can't train on an empty stomach. Well, let me let me show you the BS involved in that. <laughs> you go back, anybody who's, nobody listening to this remembers the bodybuilding days of Gold's Gym in Venice Beach. Oh, of and course, we, Schwarzen- do. Oh, of course okay, we do. Of course you do. Okay, yeah. so remember <laughs> Franco Colombo and mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger and yeah. Lou Ferrigno and all those guys yeah. at Gold's, they all trained on empty stomachs. They didn't know biology. They didn't know physiology. They didn't know any of this stuff. All they did was figure out, hey, we haven't eaten all night. That means we're not burning sugar during our training. We're probably burning more fat. And that's why they trained on an empty stomach. And guess what? They were right.
0: I love it. They probably had their different reasons for doing it, do you think? Was it because of energy or just because of fat loss and leaning up?
1: I think there's a lot of wisdom in, you know, if you read the anthropologist and the evolutionary uh, biologists, they talk about the wisdom that is often found in indigenous societies. They may not know exactly the reason that something yeah. happens, but they know when the crops are going to do well. They know when it's going to rain. They they know a lot of stuff and to dismiss it because they don't have double blind studies proving it is, is really a fool's errand. There's a lot of wisdom there. And there was a lot of wisdom in that bodybuilding community. They didn't understand about fat burning. Metabolism. Well, it's trial and error.
0: It's trial and, yeah, error. trial and
1: error. They figured this works really good. And they were right now that said, I don't ever take someone who hasn't been what we call fat adapted and say, yeah, do your morning run or your morning walk or your morning workout on an empty stomach. They're going to get lightheaded. Mm. they are not going to feel good. So you have to, you have to work up to that to becoming what we call fat adapted to being a better fat burner. Mm. And that's, you know, that's, we could talk about that. Our metabolisms are basically sugar burning metabolisms. And that's what the problem is. We mm. want to adapt our bodies to being better at using the main fuel that the body has, which is fat. We can store Greg in our bodies about 1800 calories worth of carbohydrates. We either have blood sugar. That's one of the f- ways we store it, but well, we don't store it. But one of the ways that it exists in our body is in the bloodstream. And the other way is mm-hmm. in something called glycogen, which is stored carbohydrates in the liver and the muscle. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we can store maybe 1800 calories of that. We can store 80 trillion gazillion calories of fat. Mm-hmm. So which is the better energy source? You know, when you hit the wall in a marathon, it's because you're running out of carbs. But if you can access fat as athletes like yourself can do effortlessly, you can go a hundred times longer than you could go than the average person who just I burned up the glu- my blood glucose. What do I do next? I remember towards the end of my career, I started doing
0: a lot more longer racing than the shorter racing. And I started playing around with this fat adaption and, and I could get up in the morning, not eat anything, jump on a bike, go for 140 kilometers around the the Rocky Mountains of Boulder there, Mm -hmm. come home and do that all just on water and some salt tablets, uh, a little bit of salt. And even these days questions out there whether that was really helping, but that's a whole nother story we can talk about. But basically just on water and I could do that and feel comfortable. Now, the one area that- I started to explore when I tried to do that fat adaption type work but had to do intense exercise in the morning. So when I'm trying to, I mean, I'm talking about trying to optimize going from, you know, 445 mile pace faster and really mm-hmm. trying to do repeats at that very high intense. That was the one area where I was like, that workout, I actually did prefer to take a little bit of something It actually, and so I was a self-experimenter and just trying to figure it out because I found when I was fat adapting or trying to do, you know, 10 by one mile repeats at all out efforts, I found it hard to get out fourth gear. I couldn't click into fifth or sixth gear. And that was the only time, and I'd only do those kind of workouts once a week or maybe twice a week. So, but that were the only times that I, as a self-experimenter and trying to just figure it out, the only times that I'm like, Ooh, that specific area I needed to, to, to load up a little bit when I'm trying to just extend yeah. myself a
1: little bit. But that otherwise I felt brilliant. Yeah. I could just go all day. We all have to learn to respect individual differences. There, for exa- I always use the example, there's always going to be someone in a population or maybe more than one person in the population who can drink Two cups of espresso and go to sleep. And there's always going to be someone in that same population who takes a Valium and goes out and parties all night. There are, there are oddball ways of our metabolism, very individualistic ways our our metabolism responds. And we need to be cognizant of that respectful of that. One size doesn't fit all. So you, and, and one thing I have learned is that super athletes like you have very different metabolisms than normal people. And you can't look at what you guys do and go, that's a model for what I ought to do in my, you know, I work eight hours a day. I'm trying not to lose weight. I mean, I'm, I'm trying not to gain weight. I just want to sort of stay fit. It's a very different metabolic environment than a super athlete like yourself.
0: Johnny, how dare you say that we're all unique individuals? <laughs> how dare you? Know, how, just, how you dare you spell out that we're not all part of one group think tank? And
1: <laughs> I don't know. It's hard in, in today's environment. No. It's very hard to maintain that position, no, isn't it? No. But I, I would direct you to the research of Stephen Finney. I, I don't know if you're familiar Stephen with uh, Bollock and Finney, but Finney did his research on low carb diets on Olympic level cyclists, mm. and what he found was it took a month to get fat adapted to where they were performing exactly as well as they were performing before they put them on high on keto diets.
0: Mm, interesting. And that is about that, somewhere between that four weeks to three months, it's that window mm. there that I, I've personally found that that transition happened. But I did also notice that that was when the big changes happened, but there was still consistent changes happening a year or two years later. Do you know what I mean? It's like you became yeah. even more fat adaptive the longer you did it yeah yeah but yeah you're right i mean i was coming from doing 25 years as a professional athlete where it was pretty heavy on the on the carbs and yeah. and then switching that metabolism over it, it did take a, a little bit of work for me to ad- adapt but it did feel fantastic i want to shift gear because i know i don't want to take all your time only on fasting well, take but, but all but my
1: time i'm enjoying yeah, this period, conversation period, so period, 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 period. that i want to
0: keep going because next i want to talk about is supplements. And ah. this is huge, right? Because <laughs> I, I had a
1: feeling you were going to ask
0: about I, I can honestly tell you throughout my entire career, never touched any supplements. I actually did my whole career really not doing any supplementation. I'm not saying good or bad or otherwise. I'm just saying I didn't do it. But I've found now that I'm 50 And I'm Mm -hmm. really, my mindset has shifted from a performance mindset to a longevity mindset. And I want to be around for my kids. You know, I'm an old man with two young kids, so I want to be around. So my mindset shifts. And I guess the first question, you know, because I feel like I'm popping all sorts of things and trying to figure no, out what go ahead I, i'd love to talk about supplements uh, but just again high level picture what do you think about supplements do we all need to take so many are there a few that kind of stand out more than others that we all, we should all lean on or and and on the opposite of that is there are a few that we should say hey they're a little bit overblown. You probably don't need to be so focused on those.
1: I was thinking about this very subject this morning as I was setting out my vitamins for the week, which I do, you know, once a week, I set them out for me and for Michelle. Mm-hmm. I lay out, you know, all these little plastic cups and I put in what they what we need for each day. Um, and I was looking at my vitamin count. I was like, how many do I actually take? Because this looks insane. <laughs> it would look insane to any normal person. And I counted thirty eight. now that's just the pills because Mm. i also add some fiber to some shakes sometimes i also throw in some protein powder i drink athletic greens every day which is a supplement but Mm. in terms of just pills and 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 you know things that you can put in a plastic 38 and i thought to myself are these doing me any good (laughs) and here's my answer i've been taking supplements not these same 38 because I've changed, you know, the research comes out, you try this. I had different conditions. I have a, a very severe arthritis of the shoulder. I take stuff for that. I've had, you know, so I have a bunch of stuff that I take and it's changed over the years, but I've always taken a lot of supplements and, and now my, my number is 38. And it's a lot of work to put that together and it costs money and it's a pain in the ass. And I'm thinking, does it work? <laughs> let's be honest, there is no study that looks at that particular combination of 38 <laughs> supplements and says, what, what, you know, here's a group that takes them and here's a group that doesn't over 10 years. Let's look at the difference. Never going to happen. So a lot of what I take is based on whether it passes the smell test. Every one of these supplements has been shown in studies of, in a cell, in an animal, sometimes in humans, to have very logical and verifiable effects, metabolic effects, which I think are positive. Mm. Do I know for sure that this combination is going to do XYZ? No, we don't. A lot of it is taken on faith. Here's what I look at as the evidence. My last birthday, I was 75. I was the second oldest person to complete the LA um, version of the fight for air climb, which which basically means you run up and down the entire flights of stairs for the LA Coliseum 10 times up and down. And let me tell you, that is brutal for a non-athlete like myself that isn't in, in your kind of shape. And I recently had a CT angiogram where they actually look inside your arteries to see if there is any blockage and there is zero in all four of mine, I, I have very thorough blood tests done once a year. And so I look at this routine that I spend time on and money on every week, taking all these supplements, and I go, I don't know if they're helping, but I ain't changing it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, You know okay. what I mean? There's one, one that
0: I take that I actually do feel better on, and, okay. that, and that is zinc. And I have found as... A man that mm-hmm. that has helped my vitality and more, the, mm-hmm. a, and I notice it. I notice that, yeah, and th- that's what I love. When you actually get to take something, you actually do feel better. Yes, and you know? feel <laughs> it. But,
1: but I always warn people. Because a lot of people take the supplements and then say, I don't feel anything when you don't.
0: I know, I know. Yeah.
1: And because we're in such a, our orientation is so towards drugs in this country, Mm. we, even with an aspirin, we're used to taking something and then feeling 20 minutes later, the effect of it. Mm -hmm. Supplements don't work that way unless you have a major deficiency in something. And then you start taking it and you go, whoa, I didn't realize you could feel this. That will happen. But if you don't have deficiencies, they're not going you're not going to feel them. Here's what's going to happen. They work the way antivirus software works on your computer. When you install <laughs> a great antivirus thing on your computer, that's great. Your computer doesn't run any faster. Yeah. It doesn't all of a sudden start doing tricks. You know it just doesn't crash <laughs> or at least not as often. That's a really good way of putting and it. And that's how they it, it work as a kind of under the radar protective layer. That is kind of acting as as a way of supporting your immune system, of supporting your vitality, supporting all of these things. But it's under the hood, and you don't notice it. It's not like you're taking aspirin. Oh, my headache's gone. Hmm. You know, or I take an omega three, my inflammation is gone. No, you don't. Inflammation doesn't have any symptoms. Okay, so we're all unique. We established that a few minutes ago. Are
0: there vitamins that you suggest that we? all take yes or, yes okay <laughs> let me hear them out let me hear them out um, I, I want to know your, your top favorite ones that we should supplements that we should all be looking at
1: I, I knew you were gonna ask that because you mentioned it in your in your original framing of the question like yeah. so I know that very few people are gonna take 38 supplements a day including my family friends clients you name it so over the years I've like okay what am I what do I give Michelle? The most important person in my life, my partner in life, 12 years going on forever. What do I give her every day? Because she's not going to take 38. What do I give my family, my brother and his wife and their kids? And what what do I, the guys I play tennis with, the women I play tennis with, like, I don't take supplements. What should I take? So I (laughs) there's four that I recommend everybody. It, It just has the greatest return on investment for the most number of people. And I say that in the context of my saying that all of us are different. We have different needs. We have different nutritional needs, different psychological needs. We're all unique. We should respect that. That said, these four kind of like really just benefit everybody. You know, I mean, they're very, very rare people that won't benefit from this. And the four are this. A multivitamin. But one that contains, I, I use a brand, life, by the way, I don't, none of these yep. are my brands. You can get them, you know, on, yep. on, in a good dispensary. I have an article on my blog, where to buy supplements, but I use life extensions multiple, the so two a day multiple. And the reason for that brand, um, I'm not married to that brand, but it's the only one I found that has 25 milligrams of zinc and 200 micrograms of selenium which are two of the biggest immune system boosters I know of, and that nobody really gets the right amount of, certainly not with selenium. Mm -hmm. So I like that, that in one, you know, in two capsules a day, you get not only the zinc and selenium, but you also get coverage of all the other basic things, like the complete compendium of B vitamins and a little C and little D and all the rest of the stuff and some minerals. So I like that particular brand. If you found another brand that has 25 to 30 milligrams of zinc and 200, Micrograms of selenium, that would be fine too if everything else was good. But that brand's really good and it's not expensive. Second thing I recommend is vitamin D. And I recommend a vitamin D that also comes with K2 for many mm-hmm. different reasons, mm-hmm. but get that kind. My, the dose I take is 5,000 IUs a day. I don't think that's going to harm anybody. There's no research showing that anything under 10,000 IUs a day is going to harm anybody at all. And the only research, and there isn't really research showing that more than 10,000 will either except that we just don't have research on that. We do have research on 10,000 or less. I, I should point out, by the way, the people who think that that's a lot, that there are studies of older people who are not very compliant with supplement regimens where they give them 300 Thousand by injection for six to last them six months, and nobody gets sick. So it's not a very it's not a t- vitamin known for toxicity. And I think five thousand. I play tennis every day. I'm in the sun. I live in LA. I play. We play in the noonday sun.
0: I was going to ask you that. You have that plus the sun and everything else. Yes, gotcha. Okay,
1: exactly. And, I, and, I, and it, all right, so I, I okay. have that, and it does so many things. The other two things I recommend are fish oil. As much as you can stand, uh, you know, at least a gram or two a day, and three is even better, of combined EPA, DHA. Those are the mm. two omega-3s that are in fish oil. And the fourth thing I recommend, because everybody, not everybody, 75% of America is deficient in it, is magnesium. Mm-hmm. Magnesium is needed for 300 different biochemical operations. Anywhere between 72 and 75% of America doesn't even get the FDA amount, which is 400 milligrams. So I recommend magnesium. Um, It lowers blood pressure, it lowers blood sugar, it it relaxes you, it's, as I said, needed for everything in metabolism. So magnesium, fish oil, vitamin D, and a multiple that's high in zinc and selenium are my four basics for everybody. I love those four. And is there a specific magnesium that you suggest one over the other? No, there's a million of them. I recommend people buy from dispensaries. And let me just explain quickly what the difference is. It used to be these, do- what we call doctor brands, these professional brands that are not in GNC and they're not in CVS, but they're the ones that you see in doctor's offices that sell nutritional supplements or that recommend nutritional supplements. And these brands like Thorne. Research designs for health. They're just not available anywhere except authorized dispensaries. Mm. They now sell them on Amazon, but we've found by talking to the manufacturers that many of those are fakes, or they're expired lots, or they're bought by in lots by buyers, and and they're they're just shady. They're, you can't be sure. Dispensaries are author. There are a couple of them: Full Script, relevant, and they only sell to doctors. But you can actually get a, a an account at one of them as uh, signing in as a patient. I tell you how to do it on my website on that where to buy supplements uh, article. But the point is, if you can get a reliable source of these brands, uh, the dispensaries are the way to go. And any brand that the dispensaries carry is going to be vetted and is going to be good. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be current and it's not going to be expired. And it's going to be made in small batches. And it's going to have the ingredients that the label says. And I don't care which brand it is. But get the get the good stuff. Get the stuff that's sold by authorized dispensaries, not the stuff in CVS. Awesome,
0: I love it. Hey, the one the one uh, final vitamin that we we really attack when we feel like the kids are getting sick, and we we kind of go ah, we do really go heavy on the vitamin C. We take ten thousand milligrams a day.
1: Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. But the beauty of vitamin C is that if you if your cells are not using it, you'll pee it out.
0: Well, we, we, we go on the measure that if our stool becomes
1: very loose, we probably had enough vitamin C. That's exactly. C. <laughs> that's, that's exact. That was one of the first things I learned in, in nutrition, actually, because there was a guy who used to do it intravenously. Yeah. And he said, how do you know you're taking too much? Yeah, if you get if you get a little diarrhea, cut back. Yeah, that's it.
0: That's it. Yeah. That's how we measure. Okay, so when, when we come to sort of figuring out where we're at, what, what are your thoughts? on testing ourselves, like I'm, I, blood tests for me always feel like a bit of a snapshot in that one moment. Uh, do you sort of suggest what kind of testing should people do and monitor, monitoring our bodies, you know, what sort of testing do you think?
1: Well, there, you know, it, there's endless stuff that you can test no, for. No, I mean, no, I do a hormone stop. panel every year to see what testosterone is doing, yeah, DHT, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. all of that stuff. The thing I think for most people that it's going to have the biggest impact on their actual life In terms of testing, is don't let your doctor give you the old fashioned 1963 (laughs) BS HDL LDL cholesterol test. I can't tell you the number of people who come up to me, whether it be on the tennis court, whether it be in, 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 just everywhere, and go, Would you let my cholesterol test? And I go, What what, did, what test did they use? Uh, The HDL LDL, I I don't even want to look at it. Mm It is 1963 medicine. And I I will be happy to explain why it's obsolete and what you should do instead. But the point is, LDL and HDL don't tell you anything. Mm. The new modern cholesterol tests have identified 13 different types of cholesterol. They behave very differently in the body. They're not all the same. There's LDL-A, LDL-B. They come in different sizes. And the action now in finding out about cholesterol and its importance in your health is with what we call the particle test. It turns out that the L in LDL is the important part, the lipoprotein. And if you think of it this way, cholesterol is the cargo, the lipoprotein is the boat. If you are managing a marina and you want to prevent accidents in the marina, you want to know how many boats are in the water. If you're a bouncer in a bar, you, want, you don't care what people have in their pockets, you want to know how many people are in the bar. Mm. Because the more people... Or the more boats, the more likelihood somebody's going to step on somebody's toes. Some boat's going to bump into another one. There's going to be an accident. And it's all about the number of boats in the water, the number of people in the bar, the number of people in the stadium. That's what you need to know. So the new tests don't just tell you HDL, LDL. That's like the flip phone of modern testing. They tell you the size of the particles because the little ones are much more dangerous than the big ones. Mm -hmm. And they tell you the number of the particles because that actually does predict something useful in a cholesterol test. When you're looking at HDL and LDL, it's like a Commodore 64 computer. It's kind of like doing a medical diagnosis based on are you short or are you tall when we've decoded the entire human genome of 23,000 genes and you're looking at short and tall. I mean, good and bad cholesterol. It's, it's, it's so simplistic that it's laughable at this point in time when we have magnetic resonance imaging to look inside the cell and to see, you know, cholesterol is just It's just part of the cargo of a lipoprotein. Mm -hmm. And the new tests look at lipoproteins. That's what you care about. Not how much cholesterol. That's like looking at the towels in the yacht instead of how many yachts are in the water.
0: (laughs) uh this has been fun Johnny. i really appreciate it mate i i do have one more area that i'd like to dive sure. into and this is about all things gut biome gut microbiome i knew it was
1: going to be that yeah. it's funny yeah your audience must have a very long attention span because most people can well this is for, this is as much for me as anything else oh, these days so good. it's like i guess the,
0: the question is when we we say there's no perfect gut biome but it really is like, just how do you optimize your own gut biome? Yeah, and it. this is
1: an exploding area of research. And we certainly, yeah. have, I, I started off by saying anybody who says that they know everything there is to know about obesity and weight gain and stuff is lying. It's the same thing with the microbiome. It's an exploding area of research and we don't know everything about it. But what we do know is that diverse microbiomes mm-hmm. with as many different species as possible are a good thing. Mm-hmm. And that the American diet does not give you that. <laughs> so, you know, what are the things that support it? Uh, certainly fermented foods like kimchi and, and sauerkraut and stuff like that. But a good diverse population of microbiome is, is attained by a good diverse population of foods. And I don't mean mm. that you should include McDonald's and, and tater tots and, and, and chicken nuggets and stuff like that. But a, a good diversification of whole foods is the best Support you can have for a healthy microbiome. I like that. To go to your point about how important that is in the area of nutrition that I practice, which is called functional nutrition. It's an offset of functional medicine. Functional medicine doctors who treat the whole patient and the interrelationship of all these things, organ systems, neuro and endocrine systems, all of that, how everything talks to one another. And that is the real holistic, if you will, practice of medicine. And functional medicine doctors have a saying, first treat the gut. They literally believe almost all health starts in the gut. And and if the gut isn't healthy, nothing else is. Okay. For somebody that might have leaky gut, what is that? Yeah. What does that actually leaky mean? Leaky gut is when the, well, all right, so here's what happens. The the gut wall is one cell thick. It's called the endothelium. And the endothelial wall is the integrity of that wall is very important. It's one cell thick. hmm And if you think of it, it's a very tightly wound chicken wire, right? Like those little tiny, but like imagine it with very small holes. Mm. So what happens is when you eat inflammatory things, or you take inflammatory drugs, or you take inflammatory medicines, or you take things that have been sprayed with inflammatory chemicals, whatever it is that causes inflammation in the gut, and there are a lot of things, Mm. eventually that inflammation wears a little hole in some of the chicken. It's like breaking basically a chicken, an area in the wire gets opened up, you know, like so kids could sneak into a fence, you know, and that mm. little part that's broken. That's the leaky gut. And what happens now is that things that don't belong in the bloodstream get in there because mm. the gut wall isn't protecting them at those little entry points. And now undigested peptides get in there and the immune system says, what the hell's this? and it mounts a little attack and then you see an increase in autoimmune diseases and you see mm. a, a, a pain and because these comp, these circulating uh, complexes are, are can get in the joints and all kinds of health issues can arrive from this undigested material that doesn't belong in the bloodstream getting in through an inflamed gut can you reverse and repair that yes yeah, absolutely mm-hmm. How? That's when they say first treat the gut. That's the first thing they look at. Okay, dude, what are we going to do to get this going well? Just just get rid of inflammation and then it
0: starts preparing itself. Is that it? Well, you say just get rid well, of inflammation. Right, okay, like it's no, it, just, you, you snap just, your fingers. No, no. Yeah.
1: So that's that's why functional medicine doctors look at what are all the things that can cause inflammation. Food. Yeah. yeah. Uh, exposure to toxins. Yeah. Stress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about that one? That's one that your doctor at Kaiser isn't going to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. But stress causes inflammation. Stress is very inflammatory. So we look at the whole lifestyle to see what things could be. And certainly we look at what foods might be causing inflammation and try to get those out of the diet. Two of the biggest offenders are vegetable oil and sugar. Mm. So yes, it's very fixing the gut involves many different things. It's a multifactorial approach, and most average doctors don't even address it.
0: I know we're all doing that in our family now. I think what I did to myself... For much of my career, twenty-seven years racing professionally, thirty-three years sort of in the sport. For the most part, I carried a lot of inflammation, and so now I have all these sort of things that are popping up. And so the testing we're doing, this has been fantastic for me just to talk to you and um, oh, have you as so a sounding board because it's uh, you know as I'm 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 on my journey myself in terms of gut repair and trying to you know get myself back to square one. So I really appreciate this. But this is, honestly this. This is flown by. I've sat back and just yeah, really, really, really enjoyed listening to you, Johnny. I, um, well, you. I can't tell you just how how privileged I am just to have you on the show and be able to ask you these thank questions. You. Thank and, you, um, thank you. It really has been fun. And I guess for every all the listeners out there, also you can go to any question and um, you can ask
1: Johnny questions there. He's already got a well, bunch of please answers. do. I'm going to get back on there. And I know there's a whole backload of questions for me. I've uh, been, I actually was working for this last week on a, a presentation presentation for a summit called We Love Our Heart nice. And my presentation was Cholesterol truth and LDL nonsense <laughs> And it, it, it was a big deal And I worked on it all week So I have had to uh, not pay proper attention To my any question uh, file But I'm going to get on there And answer all those questions I, I love answering questions on any questions uh, you, You've been fantastic on the app So everybody go check it out He's got some great answers The one
0: on yogurt I think I've shared with a thousand <laughs> people uh, It's just been brilliant it,
1: mate. And go go to my website and, and, yes. and take that free course the, the oh, no, introduction to intermittent. I am. going to do it. I mean everybody. Yeah, <laughs> it's, let's it's do Just it, sign guys. up for it and, yeah. and that would be great.
0: JohnnyBoden.com. Go check out the course. I, I just signed up, so uh, I'm going to uh, do the course you. No myself. H and Johnny, by the way. No H and Johnny. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'll, I'll put a link into it in the show notes so everybody, everybody can see it. Uh, mate, this has just been absolutely fantastic, so thank you so much for coming on.
1: Oh, thank you, Greg, for having me, and, and good luck with everything, and I hope I talk to you soon. All right, and thank you, everybody, for for
0: listening. Um, you can find all the show notes and timestamps and links and everything at bennettendurance.com forward slash media.
1: Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.